Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. If I can get everyone to take their seats, please. I'd like to welcome everyone to this session of uh, the Southern Alberta Council of Public Affairs, the end of AIDS, moving towards an AIDS-free generation. My name is Jen Prosser. I'll be your moderator this afternoon. I'd like to first of all remind everyone to turn off their cell phones. I just did mine, so I know I'm good to go. Uh, the session is being recorded, so I'd like to uh, also welcome the listeners uh, for CKXU and Shaw TV, who are going to be watching live today. Today's lunch is $11. I'd like to remind everyone to place your money in the basket before the lunch is served and to appoint someone at the table to count. I'm sure everyone knows the drill, but just a reminder that the fee is now $11 instead of 10 SACPA is a volunteer nonprofit organization and relies on the contributions of members and session attendees to continue its work. If you are interested in becoming a member and aren't already, memberships are available from Lisa, who is sitting right over here. And uh, we would also like to thank our partners, which we wouldn't be able to do this without the University of Lethbridge for their support and distribution of notices, Country Kitchen Catering, of course, for a fabulous lunch, Shaw TV for broadcasting the sessions, and the Lethbridge Media for always covering SACPA events. So the format today, 25 minutes for the presentation. We'll be having lunch, and then the question period will be following that, finishing at 1.30. Today's topic, like I mentioned before, is the end of AIDS, moving towards an AIDS-free generation. June 2011 marked the 30th anniversary of the AIDS pandemic. Since that time, there have been over 30 million deaths from AIDS-related causes, including, including over a million, close to 2 million in 2011 alone. Currently, there are approximately 34 million people living with HIV-AIDS, and despite these staggering numbers, there was great optimism at the 19th International AIDS Conference, turning the tide on together, which ran in Washington, D.C. this past July. Charlene Davidson is our presenter today and is the Executive Director of the Lethbridge HIV Connection, a position she has held since the winter of 2008. Prior to joining the Connection, Charlene worked in British Columbia's prison system, first as the community liaison worker at the, for at the former Burnaby Correctional Centre for Women, and later with victims of domestic abuse and violence throughout the Vancouver pre-trial service center. While Charlene has attended several provincial and national AIDS conferences, AIDS 2012 was her first time participating at the international level. She's always, she always welcomes opportunities to learn more about the AIDS movement and especially appreciates occasions for sharing new knowledge and ideas. I'd like you to welcome Charlene forward. Thank you. It is my great pleasure to be here today. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you to everyone who came out to join me today. Uh, when speaking with Knud, I was informed that it's been many, many years since you've had anyone. Sorry, is that better? <laughs> okay, when speaking with Knud, I was informed it's been many years since you've had anyone address HIV and AIDS at SACPA. So I want to start today's session before we get into the conference with what I call HIV 101. I know there's a few former professors in the room, so you'll appreciate the one I one on one. I just want to make sure everyone understands where the pandemic is today. In the 1980s, HIV and AIDS were in the media all the time. 
it's not that ca- it's not that way today. Um, significant events happen, but people don't always catch them. How many of you in the room know that HIV is now considered a chronic illness? Um, in 2012, people are living with HIV versus dying from AIDS. So we're going to go into HIV 101. I feel like the mic is so far from the PowerPoint. Uh, June 2011 did mark the 30th anniversary of the pandemic. We're now in the 31st year. In 1981, in the United States, um, formerly healthy gay men suddenly started to become quite sick and died very violent, awful deaths without an explanation. Eventually, in 1983, the virus was discovered, uh, LAV, the virus that causes HIV. Also in 1983, the major routes of transmission were identified. In an HIV-positive person, uh, all body fluid carries the virus. However, there's only a significant level to transmit in five. Blood, seminal fluid, vaginal fluid, anal secretions, and breast milk. That's better. Uh, That's critical because it helps us understand how to transmit the virus and how to prevent transmission. In 1987, the first antiretroviral drug was approved, AZT. It was not a friendly drug, and it basically sustained life for a short period, but it did not sustain quality of life. In 1995, the first protease inhibitor, antiretroviral therapy, also known as highly active antiretroviral therapy, HART or ART, uh, was introduced. Uh, Because it's so effective, it actually remains the standard of HIV care today. In 1996, the number of new AIDS cases in the United States declined for the first time since 1983. In 1997, the Center for Disease Control reported the first substantial decline in AIDS-related deaths in the United States, down 47% from the previous year. That's largely due to ART or HART. By 2011, over 30 million people worldwide have died from AIDS-related illnesses. In 2012, there are 34 million people living globally with HIV or AIDS. I hope that you all understand that HIV and AIDS are not the same thing. HIV stands for Human Immunodeficiency Virus. AIDS is Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. HIV leads to AIDS. HIV comes in and infects cells in your immune system, your CD4 cells. It comes in and replicates those cells, duplicates their parts, and eventually takes over, spreading to other cells in the body. When your CD4 count drops below 200, you're diagnosed as having AIDS. Uh, Your immune system, because it's been... um, depleted by the HIV virus, becomes severely compromised, and you do not have an immune system to fight basic illness. At that point, opportunist infections can set in. Those can be anything from malaria in certain countries, pneumonia, tuberculosis. With the H1N1 pandemic, we had a great concern. We actually had to put a pandemic pan in place just in case anything happened. We were very fortunate in that we didn't have any of our clients uh, come down with H1N1. So that's your crash course. I know it's very basic. Hopefully it brings you up to speed, and I'm happy to answer detailed questions at the end if you have them. Let's move into AIDS 2012, the, HI, uh, the conference in Washington. 
As mentioned earlier, I've been to many conferences. I love attending conferences. There's some amazing discoveries happening, some great things happening. Uh, this was my first international. It was held in Washington, D.C. for the first time in the United States since the 90s because there was a travel restriction in the United States on people living with HIV or AIDS coming into the country. That was not lifted until 2011 under the Obama administration. As with most conferences, there are so many sessions to choose from. This was my conference book. <laughs> for a week of sessions to choose. There are concurrent sessions. Uh, this was the supplement that came out later. So the biggest task every night at the hotel room was to decide where I was going the next day. Our agency was very fortunate. We were able to send three people so we could divide and conquer, as they say, and send people to different sessions. Well, I'm thrilled to be here sharing with you what were my key messages. I just want to make sure everyone understands they don't come close to reflecting what really happened throughout the week of uh, Washington. Um, there were between 24 and 28,000 participants. We had to scan in to all of the sessions. The conference center was massive. I think it was approximately three city blocks long. Um, there were sessions, workshops, poster presentations, performances, screenings, etc. The themes covered include basic science, clinical science, political science, epidemiology and prevention science, implementation science, human rights, health systems, and economics. Whew, it was a bit exhausting. At AIDS 2012, there was a march on Washington, which I'm very happy to say I got to participate in. There was a global village. This is only half of the global village. In that village, there was entertainment and fun, lots of vendors, lots of booths, lots of information. There was artwork throughout the venue. This is an AIDS orphan tower. There was controversy. Sex workers and drug users were not allowed into the United States. Uh, and there were condoms. There are always, always, always condoms at every AIDS conference, including this one. There's a whole basket. Please help yourself. Um, <laughs> What was, it, what was unique at AIDS 2012, though, was the, the push for the female condom. This photograph, this dress, is actually made of female condoms, and that's to allow women to take control of their sexuality and to empower them to have control over their health and well-being. So that's just a very brief snapshot of some of the things that were going on at AIDS 2012. What I'm going to share with you today are my takeaway messages, what I really took from the session. So during the plenary session on the very first day of, com of the conference, there was a lot of excitement over a session that talked about an AIDS-free generation. That's so exciting. I think we should just take a moment to think about an AIDS-free generation and, what, and the possibility of, of achieving this in our lifetime. It's within our reach, so they say. But before we can achieve an AIDS-free generation, we need to look at treatment as prevention and how we can make that happen. Treatment as prevention is a vital component in the formula for an AIDS-free generation. Uh, another critical topic that I want to talk about today, one that will have a tremendous uh, impact on the success or failure of an AIDS-free generation, is the criminalization of HIV. There are currently two cases before the uh, Canadian or the Supreme Court of Canada. Judgment is due out very soon, hopefully. This is a critical moment for the HIV AIDS movement, our country, and our judicial system. 
The final topic I want to address is the report that was, that was released by the Global Commission on HIV and the Law. I brought a copy. I actually printed this myself and had it bound at Staples. Uh, it's available on their website if you're interested. It's, it's a tremendous read, very fascinating to read. So we're going to look at the Global Commission and the Law, their findings and recommendations on the criminalization of HIV and of, sorry, criminalization of HIV. But the underlying theme that I'm going to address today is the role that stigma and discrimination play in the pandemic. Stigma and discrimination are arguably the greatest barriers we face in fighting AIDS today. If we are ever going to achieve an AIDS-free generation, even with treatment as prevention, we need to completely eradicate stigma and discrimination. Not just against those living with HIV or AIDS, but against all the marginalized populations in our community, our gay community, our drug users, our sex workers, our homeless, our Aboriginal populations. We need to completely eradicate stigma and discrimination. We're going to look at these one at a time. We're going to look at an AIDS-free generation. It's very exciting, isn't it? Imagine, no more AIDS. But I need to be clear on one thing. An AIDS-free generation does not mean a cure or a vaccine. One scientist at the conference stated that a vaccine is easily 10 years away. So then what is an AIDS-free generation? Day one, U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton spoke about an AIDS-free generation. She is a tremendous orator, by the way. In an AIDS-free generation, we need to, first of all, prevent future HIV transmissions. We can do that in a couple of ways. First of all, preventing mother-to-child transmission, making sure that babies are not born with HIV or contracting it through breast milk after birth. Number two, we need to increase access to treatment. Every person living with HIV or AIDS, regardless of financial status, religious beliefs, ethnicity, etc., should have access to treatment. Through this, we can lower the risk of further infections. Also through treatment, we are preventing HIV from developing into AIDS. At the heart of an AIDS-free generation is treatment as prevention. Oh, sorry. So as uh, Secretary of State stated, HIV might still be with us, but the disease it causes will not be. So in an AIDS-free generation, we will still have HIV, but we will not have AIDS. Moving into treatment as prevention. This is really the push of Dr. Julio Montaner of BC Center for Excellence in HIV AIDS. I've heard him speak a couple of times. He's a wonderful, very charming man, very, very brilliant. Uh, and what he's arguing is that if we can get all HIV-positive people, HIV or AIDS, onto antiretroviral therapy, we can decrease future infections. Adherence to ART results in a low to undetectable viral load. Your HIV viral load becomes so low that your risk of transmitting to someone else also becomes very low. This will have a substantial impact on HIV transmission. And he cites the success we have in preventing mother-to-child transmission currently as proof that treatment as prevention works. 
However, one of the sessions I attended at Washington was called Treatment as Prevention. It's simple. Treatment as Prevention, it's complex. It is actually very complex, and it is very controversial. I've seen Dr. Montaner challenged by an HIV-positive person about being on medication and what it's like to live on medication. So complex and controversial. First of all, we need to know who's positive. There's a need for testing. Lethbridge does not have an STI clinic. People do not want to go to their local doctor to test for HIV. We hear that day in and day out at our agency. We need to address health disparities. We need to know how to prioritize who gets treatment first and why. We need to know when to start treatment. Uh, just because you're diagnosed with HIV does not mean you automatically have to start treatment. However, once you start treatment, you are on treatment for the rest of your life. There's also adherence, making, making sure that people are taking their medication properly, following proper doctor's instructions. There's the financial burden, the great cost of the uh, medication. Ensuring support services such as my agency are available to make sure people are getting the help and counseling that they need. The role of acute infection, knowing who's infected. That really, it comes back to knowing who's infected, making sure people are getting tested. But there's also the argument is treatment is treatment. People are arguing, why should I uh, take treatment so I can protect you? I need to take treatment to protect myself. However, people are very reluctant. We're finding a decline in testing. And that we can attribute largely to the criminalization of HIV. In over 60 countries, it is a crime to expose, and I've underlined expose, another person to HIV or to transmit, especially through sex. At least 600 people living with HIV or AIDS in 24 countries have been convicted under either HIV-specific laws or general criminal laws. Canada convicts under the general criminal laws, uh, criminal code of Canada. From 1989 to 2012, there were 130 cases in Canada, 65% of those in the past six years. That's astounding to me. People have been prosecuted for spitting, biting, and urinating, even though you cannot transmit HIV through any of those routes. In 2008, in Texas, an African-American mentally ill man spat upon a police officer during arrest. He was convicted and sentenced to 35 years because his saliva was declared a deadly weapon, even though there is not enough HIV to transmit in saliva. As this case just showed, transmission does not have to occur for prosecution and conviction. Exposure can result in conviction. What is necessary is the person has to know their HIV status. People are increasingly choosing the ignorance is bliss route. If I don't know I'm positive, I can't be convicted. One of the sessions that I attended was called Take a Test, Risk Arrest. Some courts, and this is worldwide, not just in Lethbridge, or sorry, in Canada, some courts allow proof of consent as a, as a defense. Some will allow a condom defense. No, you didn't disclose your status, but you did use a condom. Some assume that no one would knowingly have sex with a person living with HIV or AIDS. How is that for discrimination? Some do not consider science as prevention, so treatment, and the roots of transmission, such as the Texas case did not. Uh, courts are placing the sole burden of safe sex on the positive individual. We all know that there are risks associated with sex. There are numerous sexually transmitted infections. There's a syphilis outbreak in Alberta right now. Uh, unplanned pregnancies have been going on forever. Why are we placing our sexual health 
and well-being in someone else's hands? Who has control over your sexual health? In Canada, in 1998, there was the Courier case. This was a case where a male had had unprotected sex without condoms with two women. He did not disclose his status. And the Supreme Court found that non-disclosure was fraud, that had the women known, they might not have chosen to have uh, intimacy with him. What's happening is consensual sex turns into sexual assault after the status is revealed because it goes before the courts and it's filed under uh, criminal code. It's been argued that safer sex, so using a condom, means you do not necessarily have a legal responsibility to disclose your status. The, the Supreme Court has identified significant risk, but they have not defined it, which is very, very problematic. So what is significant risk? If you use a condom and your viral load is undetectable, is there significant risk? I would argue no, but I cannot guarantee that to someone who might have to go before the Supreme Court of Canada. The two cases before the Supreme Court of Canada right now, in the first case, uh, an individual, a man had sex with multiple women without using condoms. One of these women was a minor, but that is a completely separate issue and should be dealt with accordingly. There were no infections. In the second case, it was one single incidence of sex, with a, of unprotected sex with a former partner. Um, my understanding of the case is that a woman and a man engaged in sexual intercourse used a condom, but the condom broke. She went to her doctor to seek advice. The doctor said, disclose your status. She did disclose her status. They entered into a relationship. The relationship has ended, and he's now charging her for exposure to HIV. Uh, also, in all of the cases I've just uh, used as examples, there were absolutely no infections. All cases are based on exposure. So we're going to look at the implications of criminalization. There's a great fear for people about disclosing and not disclosing. Disclosing can lead to rejection. It can lead to criminalization. There's a reluctance for people to enter relationships or have sex, which results in isolation. Uh, there was a quote from a United State in the uh, school teacher of the United States who doesn't date because she's HIV positive, and she fears being um, prosecuted because if you're convicted, you can be labeled a sex, a sex offender. She's a school teacher. If she becomes labeled a sex offender, she will never teach again. People have difficulties talking to partners because of fear of rejection. There's media sensationalization of HIV and fear-mongering. I know that we have had great media coverage here in Lethbridge for our work. I'm talking globally. Um, some countries will um, portray the positive person as an AIDS avenger who wants to infect the entire world. All this does is perpetuates ignorance and stereotypes. It increases stigma and discrimination. Ultimately, the, uh, the criminalization is resulting in a decline in testing. People do not want to know their status because you cannot be prosecuted or persecuted if you don't know that you're positive. So this ties in very nicely with the report that was released by the Global Commission in the Law. I was so excited to attend this session. I highly recommend uh, reading the report. It's available online, and it's quite fascinating. Uh, the Global Commission was uh, 14 advocates on issues of HIV, public health, law, and development. 
and they focused on high-impact issues of HIV and the law and the important ramifications for global health. These are the names. I'm not going to list them all. I will point out Stephen Lewis of Canada and Barbara Lee of the United States. So the Global Commission found... Sorry, we're one slide ahead of where we need to be. Or we've lost. Okay, so the Global Commission looked at six areas. So they looked at health and dignity through the law, criminalization of HIV transmission, exposure, and non-disclosure, risk and stigma in key populations, and they identified six, people who use drugs, sex workers, men who have sex with men, transgender persons, prisoners, and migrants. These are originally already marginalized, stigmatized groups. Uh, they also looked at gender and disempowerment, child and youth, and intellectual property in the law. Their findings, legal findings, there is no evidence that laws regulating the sexual conduct of people living with HIV change behavior in a positive way. The fear of prosecution isolates people living with HIV and discourages them from getting tested, participating in prevention or treatment programs, and from disclosing their status to partners. Recommendations for the law, countries must not enact laws that explicitly criminalize HIV transmission, HIV exposure, or failure to disclose HIV status. Where such laws exist, they, must, they are counterproductive and must be repealed. Law enforcement authorities must not prosecute people in cases of HIV non-disclosure where no intentional or malicious HIV transmission has been proven to take place. Countries must amend or repeal any law that explicitly or effectively criminalizes vertical transmission. Vertical transmission is mother to child during pregnancy. Countries may legitimately prosecute HIV transmission that was both actual and intentional using general criminal law, but such prosecutions should be pursued with care and require a high standard of evidence and proof. Finally, the convictions of those who have been successfully prosecuted for exposure, non-disclosure, and transmission must be reviewed. Such convictions must be set aside or their accused immediately released from prison with pardons or similar actions to ensure that these charges do not remain on criminal or sex offender records. I'm running out of time, so we're going to go really quickly. I want to leave you with a few quotes because I'm not the only one preaching the need to end stigma. Peter Piot said, what drives continued expansion of the pandemic is not the absence of effective prevention technologies, but discrimination, exploitation, and the repression of certain social groups. Misinformation about the disease and stigma against people living with HIV prevention still hamper prevention, care, and treatment. If we are going to get ahead of the AIDS epidemic, we need to end stigma. Sir Elton John, HIV is caused by a virus. The AIDS epidemic is not. The AIDS epidemic is fueled by stigma, by hate, by misinformation, by ignorance, and by indifference. Linda Scruggs is a person living with HIV. I'm like any other person who has a chronic illness. I didn't do anything that anyone didn't do. I had some unprotected sex. I'm pretty sure almost everyone I've ever met has had some unprotected sex. We must end stigma and discrimination. We must end the criminalization of HIV. If people feel safe from prosecution or isolation, they will test for HIV. Testing will reveal who is positive. We can get positive people on treatment. As a result of treatment, the number of AIDS-related deaths will decline, as will the number of new HIV infections. Only then will an AIDS-free generation truly be within our reach. 
So these are my opinions. I'm happy to answer questions. And again, I thank you for having me here today.